HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Lisa Held, and you're listening to Behind the Label with American Humane, produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms. This is the third episode of a special podcast series that dives into what the American Humane Certified Label stands for, and how Springer Mountain Farms, specifically, applies the label standard to raising healthy, happy chickens in the hills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Joining me again for this episode is American Humane's Director of Farm Program Operations, Haley Grimes. Welcome, Haley. Thanks so much, Lisa. I'm so happy to be back. Glad to have you. And today we also have joining us Dr. Joy Mensch, an animal welfare expert who's a professor emeritus at UC Davis and has written several textbooks on animal welfare, including specifically on poultry behavior and welfare. She's also a member of American Humane's Scientific Advisory Committee. Joy, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me. So we're going to be talking to you a lot more about your research on animal welfare and how you use your expertise as a member of the Scientific Advisory Committee. Um, But Haley, let's set the stage a little bit first. How does American Humane go about choosing its Scientific Advisory Committee? Well, we use a holistic process and search out experts in numerous fields. Um, Once you begin digging into animal welfare, the preeminent scientists aren't too hard to find, like Dr. Mitch, whom we're excited to have with us on the podcast today. As we've mentioned previously, the American Humane Certified Program started with the simple premise that humane treatment of farm animals should be grounded on solid, scientific research, proven best practices, and verification through third-party auditing. Our standards were created with input from renowned animal science professionals, veterinarians, and practitioners to help ensure that the American Humane Certified Animal Welfare Standards are science-based, species-specific, and align with best practices. Our standards are frequently reviewed by our Scientific Advisory Committee to reflect current research, technological advances, and humane handling methods. And how many members are there on the actual committee? So our Scientific Advisory Committee currently consists of a group of 24 world-leading veterinarians, animal scientists, practitioners, and ethicists. 
American Humane relies on this distinguished group to provide guidance and to review procedures, guidelines, policies, and ethics. Additionally, we rely on our scientific advisors to initiate and evaluate original and secondary research and guide us in determining best practices. And r- remind me, when, when did the first, um, first standard, farm animal standard, when was that first established? So we started our certification back in 2000. Pretty exciting that this year marks our 20th anniversary on our program. Uh, We started back then and and at that time put together these standards for what would eventually become our American Humane Certified Farm Program. So so 20 years. Okay. And, um, you know, you said that when you were creating the advisory committee that once you start looking at... um, the field of animal welfare that the preeminent scientists aren't that hard to find. I One thing that's really fascinating to me is that this whole field of animal welfare science even exists. I honestly didn't even know that. Um, Joy, has this study, this this realm of scientific inquiry, has it been along for a long time? And is there a lot of research available? No, it's a, it's a pretty new field of scientific research. I got my PhD in England in 1982, and the field was really just starting then. I was one of the initial group of animal welfare scientists in the world. Um, it's grown a lot since then. It really started with people who are interested in studying farm animal welfare, but it's expanded now to people who study zoo animal welfare, the welfare of animals used in biomedical research, et cetera. So it's, it's a growing field. Right. And and you joined the Scientific Advisory Committee at the very beginning in 2000? Yes, that's right. And how m- much has changed about what we know about farm animal welfare since then? Like, Can you give an example of something that change that maybe was, you know, you thought differently about 20 years ago that has has changed since then? Well, I, I really think the, the major thing that's changed is how much emphasis there has been as the science of farm animal welfare developed on animal behavior and how mm-hmm. we reconfigure production systems to include more opportunities for animals to perform their normal behaviors. Most of the scientists who work in animal welfare, their backgrounds are in animal behavior. So I'm, I'm pretty typical of the background of a lot of the people in the field. So that's, that's been a big emphasis. And it was actually something we didn't know all that much about uh, when, when this branch of science started. Right. So it's, it's knowing, like knowing about animals' natural behaviors and then how to sort of support those behaviors? Yeah, exactly right. Mm. Um, so I want to I talk more about that in the context of, you know, chickens and, and American Humane and Springer Mountain. But um, let's just stick to kind of going through the Scientific Advisory Committee first. Um, can you walk us through what being on the Advisory Committee looks like? Like, what do you actually do as a member of the committee? So initially, obviously, our our job was to write standards. Um, Mm. Over time, of course, when the standards are in place, then the job of the committee transitions much more to revising the standards that are in place. That could be either there's some new scientific knowledge about a specific point, a question is raised either by 
uh, an American Humane Auditor or by a producer or by a member of the public uh, that needs to be addressed. Uh, or there's an entirely new kind of production system or addition to production systems that the committee needs to write a new set of standards for. So, so typically there's a, a regular review process involved in the standards. Questions would arise and we would investigate those questions and make recommendations about how the standards should be modified or how they should be added to or parts of the standards that should be deleted. So that's the general task that the, the committee is given related right. to the standards. Are there uh, regular meetings or are you kind of just meeting or convening when something needs to be updated? We've, we've been meeting annually uh, in person, but also we have subcommittees. So there's a subcommittee for laying hens, a subcommittee for broiler chickens, et cetera. And the subcommittees meet by phone. Uh, whenever there's a need for some element of discussion or revision of the standards. Got it. And what kind of publications or resources do you use to determine the best evidence to like support requirements in the standard? So the first place we would go to is what we call the peer-reviewed literature. And that would be research that's published in scientific journals that's gone through a rigorous process of review. So we know that it's good, solid science. And sometimes that's enough uh, for us to be able to make a decision about a particular standard. But quite often as well, we would have to use other kinds of resources. So things we might use, for example, would be reports, government type reports. Uh, the European Food Safety Authority, for example, issues some excellent reports on animal welfare. We might uh, look for data that comes from commercial farms. So we might ask some farmers for information. Uh -huh. Some of the statistical companies that have anonymous data that are collected from farms. We might even contact our colleagues to see if they have some unpublished work that will be useful to us. So we use a variety of sources. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the, you know, potentially talking to farmers. I'm curious how much you're taking into account how farm operations already work, as in, you know, do you say, okay, we know broiler farms usually work this way. We start with that and then we try to tweak the system to make things you know, the best for the animals? Or are you thinking, we just set the standards, this is this is how the animals should be raised, regardless of what the farms currently look like? That's such an interesting question. And I guess the answer really is it's a, it's a little bit of both. Hmm. When you're going through the scientific literature, there, we basically divide the scientific literature and animal welfare into two categories. One would be called basic research. Um, and that, that would be research that's really independent of any kind of production system. The research is very focused on some aspect of animal behavior or animal health. I can give you an example from work I've done, a behavior I've studied a lot is um, dust bathing behavior in poultry. And okay. that's, they work loose materials through their feathers to clean their feathers. And they, they would do that in any kind of system. So that kind of research, we're really trying to understand some of the 
very basic aspects of animal behavior or animal health and why they might be important to the animal. But then there's a, a whole category of research that's called applied research. And that research is very focused on production systems and how we evaluate production systems and how we change production systems. So of course, that's a consideration in conducting and, and reading that research. Um, I, will, I will say though that, you know, one of the things about the American Humane Program is it covers a very wide variety of production systems. So it, right. it's not just a if you would, a typical commercial broiler farm, it spans all the way from large farms to very small farms, farms where the birds have access to the pasture or live on the pasture. So the, the production systems covered are extremely wide. Does that influence the standard? Is, it, is the standard different for different kinds of farms or do you just create it so that it can be applied to a variety of situations? I would say most aspects of the standards could be applied to most production systems. So something like how you monitor animal health or relationships between how, how the caretakers should be trained in animal handling. That it really doesn't matter what kind of farm that is. But then obviously there are some things that are very specific to specific farms. So if you're allowing the birds out onto the pasture, there's a whole set of standards that have to be associated with how you keep that pasture in good condition. Right. So Let's talk specifically about poultry. Um, what are the main factors you have to consider when determining whether a broiler farm operation is prioritizing animal welfare? What, what sort of elements of the overall system are you looking at? Well, I, I guess I would say that any farmer who wants to be on the American Humane Program is already prioritizing animal welfare. Right. Uh, they you know, there's no legal requirement to be on this program. So this is something that they're choosing to do to get an animal welfare certification. Um, and it, it's certainly not without uh, cost, financial costs, but also time costs, investing in the training of people, investing in record keeping. So, you know, that already is a sign that the, the farmer is very interested in animal welfare issues. In terms of specific individual farms and their priorities, what we really do as a scientific advisory committee is set up the standards. And those, in our opinion, are the important elements. And we lay out in pretty good detail exactly how those elements should be applied on the farm. And then determining whether an individual producer, their commitment to following those standards, that really occurs during the audit part of the process. Um, as a scientific advisory committee member, I don't do audits, although certainly we are very involved in looking at the audit documents um, to make sure that they're a good match to the standards, that what we want audited is really being audited in the standards. And also the American Humane Audit is what we call a scored audit. So the farmer gets points for the different 
parts of the audit, and the scientific advisory committee would advise on which audit items are the most important ones, the ones that get high point scores. Um, so if the, if the farmer is not doing well on those items, they could fail the audit. And, and the less important from the point of animal welfare, um, parts in the audit where there's time for the, the farmer to have corrective action after the audit. So Haley might want to talk a little bit about the audit process and how that plays into um, evaluating a farm. Yeah, we and we can we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, we did we did actually talk um, quite a bit about the auditing process as well in in the last episode in episode two. Um, so maybe we were a little bit ahead of ourselves in that way. <laughs> and we should definitely tie it um, to this episode. Um, before we do that, in terms of the the actual standards, though, you know the the elements of the standard that you created for for broiler farm operation. Um, I guess I'm thinking about the factors you considered that now exist in that standard. Like, is it the way the chickens are housed? Is it the way that they're handled? Like, what are sort of the different um, aspects of the animal's life that are covered in the standard? Uh, All of the above. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually a, a pretty extensive list that I was involved in developing for another organization that we use as kind of a template anytime we write a new set of standards. And it would it, it lists all of the things that you need to think about when you're writing a set of standards, whether it's for cattle or whether it's for poultry. Those would include um, how the farm is constructed, how it's managed, how the health of the animals is managed in terms of things like vaccinations and veterinary care, things like air quality, uh, how the caretakers are trained and human-animal interactions, um, how you cater for behavioral opportunities for the animals, et cetera. So it's, it's really quite a long list. And, and certainly for broiler chickens, it goes from birth to slaughter. Every, every aspect of what occurs to the animal during its lifetime. Can you give us one specific example of an element in that standard? Like, for instance, let's, I guess housing is just the first one that comes to mind, but um, like, what is the standard that Springer Mountain Farms has to meet to continue to be American Humane certified in terms of housing? In terms of housing, well, they need to keep the housing in good conditions so that it doesn't have any any areas where the birds can become injured. Floor would need to be covered with a litter material that the birds could use for foraging and dust bathing. Uh, They'd have to have a way, a method for keeping good air quality in the building so there's not there are no ammonia levels, for example, that are too high, no, no air pollutants inside the house. So those are just some, some examples of uh, how the housing would have to be um, constructed and maintained. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're, as you kind of go through that standard, it, it, it does seem like a lot is involved in um, the overall standards for a given farm. Um, 
Haley, this, this question just came to me in terms, in terms of connecting this to the auditing process. I don't know if we talked about this in the last episode. I, I don't remember, but how long does a typical firm audit take? That is a great question. Um, you know, for the most part, it's pretty consistent across the board. A lot would depend on the size and scale of the operation. So, you know, we might have a site um, or a farm that has one barn on it, and we might have a site or a farm that has 10 barns on it. So it would really depend on the size of the operation. In general, um, usually several barns can be audited in a day. I think probably on average it's around four to six that can be audited in a day, depending upon the geographic location. Um, that could be more. So we've also got travel in between barns and between facilities where we need to keep biosecurity at the utmost importance because, you know, on top of the auditing component of it, we need to make sure we're continuing to look out for the health and welfare of the birds as we complete these audits. So uh, there is a little bit of variation, but for the most part, that's typically what we see. And another thing that I I thought of when Joy was speaking about all these different standards um, and the the fact that, you know, research changes and and the standards are potentially tweaked um, as as science evolves, um, how do you keep auditors at American Humane up to date on changing standards? Sure. So typically we meet with them once a year or uh, some of our smaller auditing firms, they might bring on people periodically where as they bring on individuals that will be taking that auditing role, we sit down with them and walk them through the full audit tool that they'll be completing to answer any questions that may, we, they may have. Um, also, as you know, new auditors may be getting involved in the actual auditing process for a particular company, we can work with them uh, to work through the process of even entering it into the database. So as I mentioned on the previous podcast, once those audits are completed, they do come to us here at American Humane where um, we review those audits as they come in. Um, So we really walk with them through the entire process, making sure that they're very familiar with the audit, the audit tool, and answer any questions that they may have. So I think we should, we should wrap up and, and, you know, I, I, I guess we're kind of leaving these big questions in the air, which are, you know, what do these standards that the scientific advisory committee created and then, you know, are involved in the audits, like, what does it really look like for the chicken on the farm? And I think we're going to have Joy back to to talk more about the, the sort of day-to-day on the farm um, and what it looks like for um, poultry living on these farms. Um, and yeah, we, we're going to, we're just going to keep digging into this as we go. Um, Haley, thank you so much for coming back. Oh, thank you much so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. And Joy, thank you for, for coming on. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for listening to the third episode of Behind the Label with American Humane. In the next episode, we'll talk more about the science that supports American Humane certified standards and how Springer Mountain Farms applies those standards. We hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. This program is powered by Simplecast.